0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Studio 7500 in the summer. That's our new tagline. Studio 7500 in the summer.
1: Summer issues or summer editions.
0: (laughs) Summer episodes. Episodes. Bonus episodes. So I'm Greg
1: Hool, And I'm Jamie Brown. Thank you for joining us today.
0: What's going on, Jamie? I haven't seen you in like decades a month of Sundays I
1: know it seems like a long time
0: so what do you what's what so let me see what's going on let's see we've had we've had now had two sores
1: okay can you explain to listeners what sore is
0: probably not <laughs> it's basically our orientation so all of our new students come in and they spend the whole day awesome. learning about various things it's kind of exciting
1: yeah, nice. I don't know
0: what it stands for, student like student orientation and Registration.
1: administration. Why registration? don't we just call
0: it orientation? What's wrong with us?
1: <laughs> because we like to be different and unique. Just like we say,
0: study away, study away. Because Woodbury is
1: very unique.
0: Yes. So that's good. We have more of those coming up this summer. We have um, next month. We have, um, if you're interested in an MBA program, we have uh, information session on July 15th. Check that out. Go to our website. That um, could be exciting. Um, sample lecture go- happening at that, that event. So check it out. Thinking about an MBA? Maybe you are. Now's the time. Now's the time. The economy's headed south, you know. Uh, it's a good time to get an MBA. Get, get, you know, pretty soon we're going to be in a recession. <laughs> you know how it is. These <laughs> he's, things always, are he's always this optimistic, everyone. Um, what else is going on?
1: Nothing. I don't... I mean...
0: <laughs> oh, let's talk about... You, you placed an article for the president. Let's talk about that.
1: Oh, okay. I guess our listeners may be interested in that. So, um... You know, he, he basically, the president is so great. He likes to pen his his pieces while he's watching sports. So during the latest NBA championship games, he uh, drafted an article on the changing landscape of higher education. And, uh, yeah, that, it, he it was a really great piece. I mean, he was just going into how um, – Demographics, um, uh, you know, the students coming in or not coming in—it's—it's it's a certain, it's definitely a big challenge for um, all campuses across our country. So, he was talking about um, things that we should probably do to gear up for um, for the future needs of our students, the economy, what sorts of jobs are going to be out there in the future, and you know, basically saying that we need to focus more on STEM. Programs, uh, which reminds me, I saw we have a new program coming out in the fall.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah,
1: I was, and that has to do with the it's need a for more. STEM yeah, yeah, tell yeah, me about a, it. More. Um,
0: well, first of all, that piece is running in the San Fernando Valley Business Journal and
1: University y- Business.
0: So Jamie is so good that she can place a piece in two publications, which no one does. Well, they're so. not
1: competing outlets, so anyway, it's not that hard. <laughs> I just want to give
0: recognition. So we look forward to that. It'll be available soon. Check it out. Um, the new program is called Computer Science and Data Analytics. It's going to be available starting in the fall. So it's really, um, I'm still trying to figure out what it's about. Um, but I think that but, will be
1: in high demand. We definitely yeah. needed that sort of program here.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a big data program, you know, being able to analyze data, and it's being run out of our College of Liberal Arts, so that's, um, you know, good. We're really well
1: known for our media and arts programs, but people don't realize, a lot of people don't realize that we have a a very strong business program and liberal arts program.
0: Yeah, we have, um, yeah, we have now, I think, 26 or 27 undergraduate and graduate programs, so... That's good. And we have a few more that may be coming down the road. I probably shouldn't say what they are, but I'm going to. Are you? Uh, there's a potential that we're going to have, um, if I knew what they were. One of them is a potentially environmental science program. Okay. Um, another one that we're throwing around. And I say we, I'm, I'm not throwing anything. I'm just sitting there. Um <laughs> Is the idea of of architecture for climate change, which is a really interesting topic um, and scary and horrible. So, um,
1: and well, I also noticed that we changed the name of our um, the interior design architecture.
0: That's right. Nothing gets past you. That's right. Yeah. So, I'm just gonna get on my hobby horse here. For for whatever reason, we decided to call interior design interior architecture which confused people i think surprise surprise <laughs> and so we're going back to interior design right and people are going to be like oh yeah that's it right. that's what i want to do let's
1: just keep it simple
0: so you know sometimes <laughs> when you're thinking about marketing it's the simplest things and that's uh,
1: say it like it is
0: yeah so that now is it's interior design just like what everyone else calls it Deal. So let's stop being all uh, esoteric. And uh, anyway, that's my little thing. So we're all good. So anyway, yeah, I think we're all caught up. So please reach out to us on social media. We're at Woodbury underscore university on Instagram. We're at Woodbury U on Twitter. Woodbury U on Facebook. We want to hear from you. We want you to hear from us. You know, what, one of the things we're doing right now is we are profiling a lot of our um, ASWU students. So those are, that's our student government. Another thing that we, we don't just call it student government. <laughs> we have to call it the Associated Students of, of- Woodbury University. <laughs> and then we have to explain what Come it is. Come on, man. <laughs> the student government. So um, these are the uh, the executive... Team, basically. yeah. So, they're good, interesting stories. They've got some good stories. They're all on our website. Check it out at woodbury.edu slash news. Um, they're already active and doing stuff. Um, one of them, Marta, who works in our office, is heading to Venice next week. Oh, really? Um, there, there's a whole group of architecture students are going to venice and doing some work there in italy so that's exciting hey if you're interested
1: is us gonna go with them who's taking them or who's gonna chaperone i don't know i want to
0: go um (laughs) there's not a lot of time also it's super crowded there this time of year so it's tough i don't i don't want to break burst anyone's bubble but it's it's a tough place and to go. You're off
1: um, on a vacation very soon yourself. Yeah, I'll be
0: I'll be away. So um, you know, I think maybe Damon will will be in here. Um, Faena possibly. Who knows? Ah, we may okay. replace you, Jamie.
1: Really? Okay.
0: It's possible. And all
1: our listeners will go away because you're right. They're the only reason they. And listen or listen.
0: Of me. So let me just. We're also because I have to do this. <laughs> We're getting more and more listeners. So hit us up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Tune in. We're there. So check us out. We want, to, we want you to listen to us, share us, review us, give us some stars. Tell
2: That's your friends.
0: That. So we're also on Woo Radio. So, you know, that we have that too. So why don't we take a short break and we'll be back with our guest.
1: Welcome back to Studio 7500 it's Jamie and Greg and we are here today with our guest alumna Dove Presnell welcome to the show thank you welcome thank come. You, thank you. so Dove is a graduate of our um, business program you um, graduated in 1995 and uh, my notes here tell me you are a psychotherapist.
2: Yes, that's one word most days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I'm just going to turn it over to you, Dov, to give us a little bit of background about yourself. And uh, I guess let's just start from the beginning. Where are you from? Yeah.
2: I'm originally from Oregon, so yes, Dove is my real name, and uh, yes, my parents were hippies. Um, Came to California in 1989 after going to high school overseas. Oh, where? um, Papua New Guinea. Oh, hold up. Oh my gosh, hold (laughs) Hold
0: up. up. (laughs) Okay, so how did you end up in Papua New Guinea?
2: My parents were doing linguistic work, so we went there when I was 14. So I spent three years there in high school, which was very formative and then came to Los Angeles in 1989 with a full ride at USC. Um, and, but I left USC looking back now that I'm a psychotherapist and like professional at this stuff. Um, I was really impacted by the civil unrest of 1992. I was in the Mm. middle of it, um, at that time. And so I took a break from school after that. And then, um, realized I needed to find a different place to finish my education. Um, USC was also a really big place, and um, Mm. I didn't feel like I had found my people there. And so I was living in Burbank, and came up to Woodbury, and checked it out, and loved it. I spent my last year and a half here. Okay. Uh, Changed my major to business, um, because at the time, you pretty much had design, uh, architecture, and business. as your options here. Um, and I had a really great experience at Woodbury.
0: Well, uh, one thing we like to ask is, so you were living in Burbank, but had you heard of Woodbury?
2: I, it's okay it was a, a you long time ago. Most, I, most I, people
0: I, haven't. So it's I, okay. I
2: can't, I can't remember how I heard about it. I heard about it from somebody who lived, who also lived in Burbank. Cause I was looking at where I should go to mm. finish out my bachelor's degree. Um, So I finished in 95 and did work in business marketing for a couple of years and then went back to school to study, um, to be a marriage and family therapist. So that's my professional designation and, um, have been a therapist since. Um, so I got licensed in in 2001. Um, and I've done a combination of private practice and community work since then. So, um, I have an office, uh, currently in Los Feliz moving to Pasadena where I see individuals and couples and do kind of normal psychotherapist things. Um, but what, uh, I think why Damon suggested I come in, uh, today is, is about some of my more community oriented Mm -hmm. work. And, um, so I have a nonprofit organization that I started called Survivor's Truth. That's about using, um, technology and media to support people directly impacted by social problems in having more of a voice in both defining the problems and um, describing and working towards the solutions to those problems.
0: Um, let's talk about that a little bit. So what do you, so give us, like, what does that mean in the simplest terms? So Are you using technology to address these issues? How, how, how does that work?
2: That's a great question. Um, And it really depends on the the particular situation. So um, I was working in uh, Liberia, West Africa when I started doing this work. I I had a private practice for some time, but had wanted to go back overseas and kind of see how relevant um, our ways of working might be in another environment, in Mm -hmm. another cultural setting. And so um, I went to Liberia shortly after the end of their civil wars Mm -hmm. and um, was training community-level counselors. And um, I had done a lot of work with trauma survivors here in the U.S. before that. And so um, what I found was that the work we could do one-on-one with somebody could be helpful, but what was much more important to survivors was being um, really – reintegrated into community in one way or another. And one way to do that is to share your experience Mm -hmm. with the community. Um, However, when we only ask people who've been through something difficult to tell us about what happened to them, we kind of lock them into that victim character in their story. And what I found was really much more helpful was asking people about how they had come through that. Um, and how they were getting on with life. Mm. And so those stories of victimization are important to share. You know, we should bear witness to what other people have gone through and support other people with carrying those experiences. And um, those stories of victimization are always about powerlessness and lack of resources and being disconnected from others. Whereas the part of their story that's about how they've come through it is always about resourcefulness, uh, localized knowledge, relationships, faith, things that we as helpers can build on. Um, And so I started Survivor's Truths out of that growing awareness of that importance. So what that looks like in practice in terms of using technology, um, recognizing that communications technology lets us reach many more people, lets many more people participate so you know in liberia that can look like community radio Mm -hmm. or um we're we're working on trying to get funding to do some sms to web applications that help people with differing level levels of access Mm. participate in a conversation um here in los angeles one of the programs that i i've worked with Is called Speak Up, and um, that's with an organization called the Corporation for Supportive Housing. And Survivor's Truce was an initial partner in establishing essentially what started out as a Speakers Bureau, just to have some people with lived experience who were prepared to talk about that. Um, But that program was designed and has evolved to be more than just a Speakers Bureau. It's very intentional in um, centering the knowledge of people with lived experience in as, as architects of the solutions mm. to the problems that we face.
0: Even the the term survivor has, has taken on, and it, it makes perfect sense, and I'm glad we use it, but instead of saying victim, we now tend to say survivor. And I think maybe you want to talk a little bit about that because that seems to speak to what you do, right? Like you're not... The person isn't, I mean, they may be a victim of something that happened, but they're a survivor, and they're talking about their experience and how they got through it, right?
2: Yeah, and I, you know, there's, <laughs> within the, the field of social services, there's a lot of discussion about that and debate about which terminology should be used. I happen to think we should use whatever terminology fits for that person, um, because people, you know, if someone has experienced uh, violence, they have been a victim of violence, um, and they're also a survivor of that. And um, but language is so important, and so often within um, within the helping professions, we situate knowledge with the helpers. You know, those who have. To, I've, I've got a master's degree, so I know a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Th- that knowledge is, is often privileged over the knowledge of the person who's actually gone through the thing themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we're really, um, you know, with, with Survivor's Truth, my intention is to counter that. Programs like Speak Up are also countering that. Really, we're really putting forward that those with lived experience um, shouldn't just be consulted in the work we do, but should be central in, in designing and decision-making or, of, of any program that we're doing to help
1: so on that note, um, what have some of your um, – the, the, the folks who have had lived experiences with homelessness, what are some of the solutions that they've put forth for such a huge problem?
2: You know, it's great um – I was just sitting with a group of, of alumni of the program this morning. So what Speak Up does is prepare individuals to share their personal stories in order to advocate for better policies. So it's a 10-month program. People who participate in that program come to monthly workshops. We workshop. We, we actually teach public speaking skills and storytelling skills, and then they get to work one-on-one with a volunteer coach. So one of my purposes of being here today is to recruit some Woodbury folk who are interested in doing that work, because our coaches are, are the uh, the heart and soul of, of the program. They work one-on-one with advocates to help them develop their own story, and then they The advocates then go out in a variety of places to share their stories. There's been many, many videos made. They go to Sacramento. There's a group going to D.C. next month. There's a lot of of activism, um, and and this is to support people in being able to tell their stories in ways that convey their message more effectively and also in ways that are more respectful of them as people. Um, So... Um, And then in terms of the solutions, we were just having this conversation today. Um, So having many people will be aware that in Los Angeles County, we passed uh, measure measure H and measure HHH to fund services. So. Uh, Alumni of the Speak Up program are sitting on some of those decision-making boards that are deciding how to use that money, where to use that money, um, and what makes it most effective. Today, we were having a really deep conversation about how mental health is delivered, and people who are involved with community mental health centers have to see one of the Advocates was sharing that she sees a psychiatrist every three months, but it's typically a different psychiatrist. And so every three months she has to retell her story, um, her trauma story. Mm -hmm. And she's like, this is re-traumatizing me. Every time I do it, it sets me back. And so we were talking about where she could plug in to bring that knowledge in and to advocate for some systemic ways to make sure that people aren't constantly being Mm re-traumatized. So those solutions... um, the generally center around uh, reducing the barriers to accessing help um, and and around being more respectful of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. that were um, that were' trying to help. Um, there's a whole push to look at how data is collected and what data is collected when we're doing social services and to be more mindful and respectful of people mm-hmm. in doing that. Um, so, there's a, there's a lot of different, different pieces to, you know, as, as you're probably aware, the numbers on homelessness came out just last week. Right. Yeah. And it's we're really, yeah. really shocking to people. Um, and a lot of people are saying, well, we're putting all this money in. Why isn't it getting better? Have to point out that Los Angeles, compared to the rest of the state, is doing well. Our numbers went up much less than in other parts of the state um and in other parts of the country so addressing a problem that big is there's no one magic bullet but what's wonderful about the speak up program is that advocates can come and they can, each person might have a different focus a different area that they're really interested in and can speak to but they can bring that expertise and that expertise can be really useful to people who are trying to to do something
1: well, are, are these people, sorry, Greg, are, are these that now they're, they're no longer homeless?
2: Exactly. The CSH Speak Up program um, participants are all people who were homeless in mm-hmm. the past um, and who now live in what we call supportive housing, which is housing that also has social services connected to it.
1: And before I let you have it, Greg, I want to ask, in order to be a volunteer, what are the requirements? The volu- Yeah.
2: Great. The volunteer the main requirement of a volunteer is you have to really care and um, be committed because it is about a year commitment that you're making and it's about 10 hours a month so people have to be committed to show up and to stick with it through the program um having a deep respect for people and and curiosity we have found it's interesting to me as a psychotherapist when we started out we thought most of our coaches would be therapists in training we have found that actually people who are creative, um, writers, actors, filmmakers, storytellers in other ways. People who are empathetic. <laughs> yeah, and who know the craft of storytelling um, have been some of our, our our best volunteers. And we have people still with the program who started out as volunteers six years ago, but the program is growing. So we're always looking for coaches, and we actually have one paid position available right now, that um, we're really looking for someone who would like to grow into managing the program eventually. Uh, The current program manager is being tasked with taking this program national and scaling it up. Um, And so we need uh, someone who's like super detail oriented, able to do all the admin stuff, but has like just a passion and a heart and Loves people. So if there's any alumni out there who are interested, um, we're actually recruiting for that position right now.
0: Do you want to give us your contact info? Oh.
2: Sure. Um, my direct contact, talk, contact info uh, is dove at talkingpossibilities.com. That's probably the easiest way to reach me. Shoot me an email uh, with your phone number if you want to talk, and I'll give you a call back. That's That's probably the best way to reach me.
0: Okay, great. One of the I wanna sort of take it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm the big picture person here. Mm-hmm. I ask long, detailed, ridiculous questions. He likes to hear himself talk. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but really what I want to get at is I have a
2: diagnosis for that.
0: <laughs> I'm really I'm not narcissistic, <laughs> I promise. I'm the best host ever. Nobody's hosted better than me. I'm doing my Trump. Imitate. anyway um <laughs> uh, the homeless, as you mentioned, the numbers are not good and they keep getting worse and worse and worse and I know there's no e- easy answer to this there's no like people will talk about housing and that's part of it They talk about mental health and and addiction and all of all sorts of things but what's your take like what how how do Communities like L.A. and other communities, how, how, how do you deal with such an issue?
2: Well, like you said, there's a lot of factors that are at play. I think what L.A. is struggling with most right now is that we have a lot of us who, who see the tents on the street, where, you know, it's heartbreaking, we care, and at the same time, you know, we pass this... Um, these measures to fund services, and yet every time uh, a proposal goes in for a supportive housing project or an affordable housing project, the community objects and pushes back. Um,
0: Which just happened, right?
2: Oh, it's happening all the time, everywhere. And and it, I mean, I live in Lincoln Heights, and and we're slated for for div, for div quote unquote developments. It's just four small parking lots, so they're four small developments. Um, and people are are outraged by this. And I think what we really have to get past in order to address this is the idea that the homelessness are them, that these are other people. Um, I think particularly the focus on um, addiction and mental health contributes to that because it, I'm not an addict, you know, and I'm basically mentally healthy, you know. Um, and yes, there are a lot of people who fall into homelessness because of problems with addiction or mental health. Um, but the reality is is that there are so many people, so many working people who are one paycheck away from not being able to pay their rent or their house payment. And that's how people are becoming homeless. That's how homelessness is invading families and putting families into their cars. Um, my son is is just finished elementary school and a couple years ago we were doing the Home Walk, which is an annual awareness and fundraising event and so he did his fundraising page and i asked him to write why he wanted to do it and he wrote about and i did not know about this a classmate who had been living in their car and he noticed it Mm. he noticed that that classmate's parents car was sitting outside the school at the end of the day he would see them walking across the street to subway to get something to eat and when we came back in the morning the car was in the same place Mm. and and he he wrote very profoundly about how a kid needs to be able to go home and have and have their parents cook them dinner and this is what we're facing and so we have to get past this idea that that people who are on the street are different from us Mm. and that's hard to get past because it's so scary to imagine what it would be like and 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 we want to believe that that could never happen to us but we have advocates we have A number of speak up advocates, the way that they became homeless was they had a medical crisis
1: Mm.
2: and that um, put them in the hospital for X number of months and they lost their housing. And and then they ended up on the street after after hospitalization for for uh, one person had an aneurysm. Like these are things, you know, any of us could have a stroke today. You well, know? This is why telling stories yeah, is so important. It is exactly.
0: I, I say s-
1: I could not do what you do because I would cry. I mean, I don't. I mean, just hearing these stories. I mean, how do you go home and not think about them? And how, do they impact your life? I mean, yes, they impact your life. But how do you separate what you hear as a psychotherapist and in your in your work with the community and staying sane?
2: <laughs> That's right. It's doing this direct work is not for everyone. Um, and uh, I get asked that question a lot, and my my answer is that I could not be a doctor or nurse because like blood and body fluids, and uh, I can't, I just can't. But I, for some reason, I can handle the psychological gore. That's what I, that's how I look at it. And so when, and I think one of the reasons that I've been able to sustain this work over twenty some years is because I've always had this lens of seeing like how is this person still still here and how can I support that? Like, what's, what's happening that, you know, so many times working with trauma survivors who've been through, like, things I don't talk about because it will traumatize the person hearing it. Um, and I'm looking at the person like, how are you even speaking right now? Like, how do I access that and support that and nurture that, mm-hmm. that thing? Um, so that's that's my personal thing. I think also um, for anybody who's considering volunteering, which I hope you do, um, come on over. It's really actually a lot of fun. It's not all sadness and and misery. Um, but setting realistic goals and, um, and clear goals for yourself. So one of my first jobs in social service, which was actually while I was a student at Woodbury, was I worked on the weekends on a hotline for kids who had been trafficked for prostitution. And so at that time, there was no internet, so it was all um, street outreach, but I worked on the hotline. So we would get calls from kids. I would get a a call from a kid who would say, uh, he's gone, meaning their pimp, "Um, get me out of here. And I would have to try to figure out where they were. And sometimes they didn't know what state they were in, uh, let alone what city. Mm -hmm. And walking through that, and um, I realized in short order that um, I was going to have to figure out how to make meaning of that work, because I would know that most of the kids I talked to weren't gonna be okay. Like, I could help them in that moment, but long-term, like, I could predict that you know the majority were not gonna, were not gonna go on and, and just have, quote, normal everyday lives, you know? And um, so I decided that my personal goal was that every person that I talked to would have the experience of having talked to an adult who cared about them and who listened to them and who believed that they could be okay. And um, if that just provided a momentary respite from the rest of their lives, that was okay. If it was a seed that maybe germinated over time and led to something else, great. But um, but that wasn't my job, my job was to be present. And so um, I, think, I think that's, um, possibly helpful for anyone who's looking at how can I get involved in my community? How can I help? And finding yourself getting overwhelmed, you know, pick the thing that you can focus on and that you can do really well and that you can own. Um, And, and do it, do it well. You know, we, we can't, no one person can do it all. Um, But if all of us do some, uh, we can really make things change.
0: You talked about, you alluded to earlier that, i guess it was the the riots in la that was a sort of a the seminal moment for you that that um can you do you want to address that because it sounds like that moment was really the catalyst to get you where you are today so can you talk to us about that a little bit
2: i think it was an important moment um I think my experience living in Papua New Guinea as a kid was really the most shaping experience I had because, I mean, I grew up on a farm in Oregon, you know, and, like, my world was pretty small. Mm. And um, Papua New Guinea is one of the most linguistically and culturally diverse places in the world. It's just mind-blowing. And so that opened up my world and opened up an appreciation for the value of the many different ways of understanding things and seeing the world and making meaning out of life um and so then when i came to la um and i ended up at sc which is a wonderful educational institution at that time as an undergraduate i was in class with like celebrities kids um, one of my classmates was really pissed off because his parents didn't replace the BMW they oh got him God. at sixteen. You just
1: couldn't, really. <laughs> right? so what so couldn't you relate. What were you studying at that time?
2: What international you- relations oh. and economics. Okay,
1: so that's but you, you thought you wanted business and.
2: Yeah, I music. was in. I was actually, <laughs> at that time, I was interested in indigenous land rights. Like that was the thing that was fascinating to me. Um, and so I didn't relate to some of the other students there as much. And so I started working in the community and volunteering um, at a local elementary school. So when – when, um, and I worked off campus because I was a scholarship student, so I had to work um, a lot. And uh, so I was working actually at the bank on Figueroa and Adams the day that the Rodney King verdicts came down. Mm. And um, I was about ready to leave. And um, – one of my coworkers, and I think I was the only SC student working there at the time. Everybody else was from the neighborhood. And one of my coworkers came down and said, the ver- they're bringing down the verdicts. They're calling, you know, they've called the, jur- the jury back in. And um, so we all went up to the break room and there was this little, it must have been like an 18-inch old school TV that all grainy and we're all gathered around it. And the verdicts came down and I remember being stunned Um, my colleagues were not, they were not surprised. And then I asked someone, I said, well, I'm supposed to go to the school tomorrow, uh, which was Martin Luther King elementary on Martin Luther King Boulevard. I said, should I go? And they said, um, she was so sweet. This older woman said, sweetie, people are going to be really upset. Why don't you just wait and see how things go and maybe go next week? Um, and then I walked back to my um, friend's house uh, apartment, which was on um, near Vermont and Adams. And by the time I got there, his housemate had a map, This pre-internet days, people. Mm-hmm. And he had an actual map of LA and was marking as the fires surrounded mm-hmm. us. So we were completely surrounded by fire. Um, but then the next morning we got up and we left and we got out of Dodge. Um, and then I went back to the school. And so I was just so acutely aware of that. The, the rest of the community, they they didn't have that option to leave. And um, a number of students in my class, the class I was working in, had experienced really extreme violence during that weekend. And um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was impactful in that, like looking back, I think I was actually really traumatized by that. Um, at the time, I just um, kind of shut down. Um, and it was only through, like over time, recognizing that that was a moment where it it got me to Woodbury, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't get myself to go register again. Mm-hmm. Um, I had moved up to Burbank, and the plan was to commute to USC, and I couldn't, it was, I wanna say it was 10, at least 10 years before I went down to that oh. area again. Um, and so that's, that's recognizing like we have experiences in life, and we, we go on and we find our way, and sometimes that way, lead, you know, something it's not like that led me to a bad place because I ended up at Woodbury, and I actually had a much deeper, um, richer ex- educational experience here, um, particularly because the faculty were wonderful and all working. Like Mm -hmm. there were only a couple of faculty who were just teaching. Most of them were also had their own businesses or, you know, were doing different things. And um, so that integration of sort of the academic and the practical, I think, really contributed to my way of looking at my work as a therapist of like, well, how do I take this out and how does this look out in the world?
0: Yeah, because you sound like from everything you've talked about, you're also pretty entrepreneurial, um, and so maybe that's something you you got from your time here as well.
2: I think uh, so. I think so. When did you
1: decide that you wanted to go into therapy, psychotherapy?
2: Um, it was a, it was a couple of years after I graduated, and actually, that's so funny because when I was a kid, I was really, I was like ten, which my son is eleven now. And I read this book. I was always reading and getting things from the library, and I should never have been reading this book, but I read a book called One Child that's about this teacher who uh, taught autistic kids, and then she realizes this one kid is being horrifically abused, and she intervenes and um, saves this kid's life. And I read this as a 10-year-old, which is questionable, Hmm. Um, and I said, I want to be a child psychologist. Like, that was when I was 10. And then went on and, and had different experiences, and um, so, um, so I guess the seed was there, but um, I had done some marketing and, and practice development work for a neurologist in Burbank, and uh, I had left and gone to another uh, business marketing job, and to lure me back, he was like, you need to get a master's degree, I think you should be a therapist, you'd be a good therapist, and he offered me a profit share <laughs> And he would pay my tuition oh, to go oh, get my oh, master's wow. degree. So that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> and
1: where did you go? Where did you get your master's? I went to
2: Phillips University, which is in um, the Northwest Valley, mm-hmm. and um, and I went there because I could work at his medical practice and go to school in the evenings. So I did my master's degree in the evenings wow. there.
0: Um, but yeah, so you're,
1: you're just a little bit ambitious, I would say. <laughs>
0: that's great so um, and I did look I said so I said I'm back to saying so anyway um, how did you end up in Liberia
2: that's a good question Um, randomly um, I wanted to do international work because of my experience in Papua New Guinea and Papua New Guinea is kind of as far as you can get from Africa actually (laughs) people you know all all developing countries are the same in a lot of people's minds but they're very very different Um, but making the transition as a professional from doing domestic work to doing international work was actually really hard. Um, every job in the field, um, they wanted experience working in the field, preferably in that region. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, how do you get that experience? So I initially was hired by, um, Médecine Sans Frontier Mm -hmm. and, um, I was supposed to go to Gaza and like they... I went, they flew me to New York. I went through their whole orientation and stuff. And then Arafat got sick Mm -hmm. and they were like, "Mm, blonde, blue eyed American girl in Gaza right now. Not what we want to do. And they had to be fair. They had people they'd worked with before. They had no idea if I could hack it, you know, in an intense environment. So, um, they had people they had worked with before who really want to be there when the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. And so they had lots of volunteers to go to Gaza. So, they put me on hold, and while they had me on hold, this job came up in Liberia, and again, they were like, you have to have two years of gender-based violence work in this region, And but I had a friend who had a job with that organization, and uh, I talked to her, and she goes, you know what, just send your resume and say, I've reviewed the position, and I'm qualified, and I look forward to talking with you. So that's literally what my cover letter said, And somehow I got through the interview with HR and then I got on the phone with the country director and she's like, so you don't actually have any field work experience, right? And I said, no, you know, I've done a few little things like when I went back to visit Papua New Guinea, but like I'd never had a job overseas. And she goes, how long did you live in Papua New Guinea? And I said, three years. And she goes, you'll be fine. (laughs) And so so that's how I ended up there.
0: When, what year was this?
2: 2005.
0: So it was after Charles Taylor and all that. Yeah, Yeah.
2: it was after um, they had completed, they had the peace accords there, and they had completed um, the disarmament by the time I got there, which means that um, a lot of the weapons that different fighting factions had, had been, they'd either been turned in or buried in the ground. So there weren't fighting factions walking around with weapons.
0: So you were helping people deal with, you know, the sort of post-conflict trauma?
2: Yeah, my job was to train and mentor Liberian people to deliver mm. trauma counseling services.
0: Which is great, yeah, that's. Yeah. And
2: that's... how long were you there? Um, just under two and a half years. Wow. So I worked with one organization for a year and then was recruited by an organization called the Center for Victims of Torture. Um, mm. you know nice light stuff right. um, worked with them for just over a year and then um, but I'd, I'd been uh, sitting with this idea of you know the nature of psychotherapy as we define it is it's very private it's very personal it's one on one maybe a small group but it's got to be confidential and um, recognizing that a lot of the research that had been done with trauma survivors up to that point had been done In Western countries, primarily, a lot of it in the U.S., I shouldn't shouldn't even, I'm not discounting work done in other countries, but primarily here in the U.S. it had been done with sexual abuse survivors and with Vietnam-era veterans, both of which are groups that the keeping of the secret is part of what's traumatizing. Mm. But I was there in Liberia, and everybody knew everyone, and everybody knew what had happened. Like, Mm. there there weren't actually secrets. It was bizarre to me how, I mean, there's three million people in this country and I could be walking down the street and with somebody and they'd be like, Oh yeah, that's the one that they all gang raped. And I'm like, what, oh how my do
1: you, how do you
2: know that? You know? And they, they'd be referring to something that happened, you know, way out in the countryside. Um, and so I started really looking at public t- storytelling. Um, and I did a little bit of, um, research for their truth and reconciliation commission And that's where this idea of public telling of stories of survival came from, because um, every place that, what is now called transitional justice, um, had been attempted um, using public hearings where victims testify as to what was done to them and perpetrators testify as to what they did.
0: South Africa did this, right?
2: South Africa was the first country that did this, and it was really landmark and Many other places have emulated that, and Liberia was trying to emulate that. But one of the gaps in these processes had always been that there was um, a presumption that telling your victim's story would be healing. Uh, That's very grounded in Western psychotherapy theory, um, and it had not borne out. Like, Mm -hmm. there was, I, I reviewed tons and tons of literature to try to help the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission decide what kind of mental health support they should offer to people. And I couldn't find a single study that showed that people who testified in any country were doing better than the general population oh. that had been impacted by their war. Hmm. So, yes, yeah, so that was interesting. So Survivor's truth came out of this hypothesis that, well, maybe that's because we're only asking about their victim story.
0: Right. So
2: I suggested that the TRC in Liberia consider having a second set of hearings where people could share their survival stories, call out the names of the people who helped them, um, have a more rich accounting of that, because that would speak more to their own resourcefulness and resilience, as well as cultural resources. That can be the foundation of reconnecting and and rebuilding. Um, And the chair of the TRC at the time said this is This is what we should do, and we can't. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have uh, the support of the international community. So I stayed on after I finished my contract to do what ended up being very much a documentary-style project, um, photos and stories, of people telling their survival stories. And he asked me, he said, go ahead and do this project and bring it back to be part of our national narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's how that started. Since then, I've moved away from that journalistic kind of approach. Um, and I'm much more interested in working with groups who are already doing great work with, with mm-hmm. the different peop- groups of people affected by different problems to help them bring this strength-oriented uh, storytelling into how they work and um, really challenge the structures that keep the people who benefit from services separate from the people who make decisions about what, what should be offered and how.
0: Why don't we take a short break and we'll be right back.
1: studio 7500 Greg and Jamie here interviewing our alumna Dove Presnell and we're just so happy to hear your story it's so inspiring it really is and I'm I'm especially just intrigued with it because um, well one reason is because I have a daughter who's 19 and you know what you what you're saying she she really reminds me of you in, in a lot of ways. She's super duper deep. She's was raised in a bubble of La Cunata. So, you know, she says all these kids care about, I mean, sorry if anyone from La Cunata is listening. Hopefully you, you're not like this.
0: You're lovely people. You're
1: lovely people. You are. But um, a lot of the kids who she went to high school with were, like, talking about their next new car. Or a lot of them want to go to SC and they talk about how much money their parents make and you know, things like that. And so she is really turned off by all of that. Mm. And um, I'm really happy that at 19, 18, 19, she, even at 17, she realized that it wasn't all about money and wealth. And so she, um, where am I going with this? So she started out, she's like, I really don't know what I want to do, Mom. But um, so she started out as a business major. And then um, switched her major midway to psychology. And uh, now she's like, you know, Mom, I kind of want to take a gap year and go experience some traveling. And she's just super deep. She's a very smart girl, very ambitious. But she is not a sheeple, as she would say. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it like everyone else wants to do it, Mom. I'm not – and being from the community from w- from where we were from, she, you know, it's just like I'm a little panicked. Like I want her to get her degree and, you know, not fall behind and all that. But deep down inside, I realize that it's her journey and that one year is not going to make a difference. It, it might even – you know, allow her to figure out what she wants to do, whether it be going into psychology or business or whatnot. So I guess all of this to say, um, for young people who are going into college and don't know what they want to do, what is your your best advice for them?
2: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, hearing about your daughter, um, it really resonates, because you know, when I started college um, at SC, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I was very clear. I was going to um, to get my degree in international relations, work for the UN in indigenous land rights. And as I went along with my program, I became less certain that that was what I, you know, the job I wanted. And um, so, um, so then, you know, you're talking about taking a gap year. I, I inadvertently took a gap year. It wasn't necessarily my plan. But what did happen is in that time, when I came back to finish my degree, when I came to to Woodbury to finish my degree, I had a different kind of focus. And my grades changed dramatically. Um, I'd never been a terrible student, but I didn't have that focus at SC. And I was working, and I was, like, always stressed and divided. And even though I was working when I came back to school at Woodbury, I was very focused. I went from, you know, being a solid B, B plus student to being an A plus student. Um, And, you know, I would I would say for young people, it's okay not to know where you're going to end up. In fact, it's probably really for most people, it's good to say, I don't know where I'm going to end up because there's so much uncertainty and things are changing so quickly. Um, I mean, unless you're like pre med and gonna go on to be a, a doctor, um, you know, which requires that kind of focus and discipline over many years, you're probably gonna have a number of careers. You're probably gonna do a number of things. And so in looking at your undergraduate program, a good solid liberal arts program that prepares you to understand the world and navigate uh, different environments is, is a great option. For me, the business degree ended up being an accidental excellent choice. Um, even going on and doing a lot of work in the nonprofit sector and in social services. Social services is known for promoting from within, so you often have somebody who's a really good case manager or counselor ends up being a manager. Guess what? Those are... That background does not prepare you to manage people that background does not prepare you to manage budgets but because I had the background in business it has helped me structure my work structure um, my organization just knowing how to do kind of what for a business person uh, somebody with a business degree would be basic things I can't tell you how many times I've you know like taken notes on a meeting and people are like wow this is amazing because it's not there they haven't had the benefit of that training so i really look at my undergraduate work um and degree as being a really it was a really solid platform that i could jump off from in different directions and i also um to go back to the faculty here at woodbury i think that um that the fact that the I had these amazing professors who were such good teachers who are also working in the field. It really helped foster in me that, um, that idea and that just a sensation of like, I'm not locked into to just sitting in my office and seeing clients all day, like that I can be curious about the world and be looking at how this knowledge or this experience applies in different places in different ways and, um, and not get kind of locked into one thing. So you, what,
1: um, this is maybe off topic, but you you have a private practice as well, right? Yeah. So why do you, do you think you'll ever just do one or the other?
2: For me, I think it's good to have a balance. You know, there's, um, I love working one-on-one with people and that's, um, that's really richly re- rewarding um, most of the time. It's, uh, you know, I'm always inspired by how people figure out how to, make their own lives better and um, improve their relationships. I mean, when it comes down to it, life is all a bunch of relationships. So when I can help somebody have m- more satisfying relationships, you know, I I feel like I'm making the world a better place because how many people are they um, engaging with uh, in their lives? Um, but I also I also am a take-a-step-back, see-the-bigger-picture person, and so – um so that's where the community work the systems work you know i really see this work with survivors' truths as about pushing back on the whole system of humanitarian and social services of like who who has the expertise and how do we center their expertise more um you know that's kind of it's it's um it's relatively new concept and it's really kind of countercultural um but I think can make a big, big impact. So I, for me, both, although sometimes I get tired and then I'm like, maybe I'll just have a nice little private practice and not do all this stuff. But (laughs) the thing about working and having different things going on, whether you're teaching and running a business or, 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 you know, however you, you juggle the things in your life. One, that's kind of the modern economy that we're, that we're living in. And so that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because we can sort of um, adjust things as time goes on. And so like my son is um, going into sixth grade and for the last, I wanna say four years, I really took a step back on the nonprofit front. Like My nonprofit was there, but I wasn't pushing it forward, I wasn't building it, because I just needed to have more attention to, to the parenting side of things. And now that he's getting more independent, um, I'm re-engaging with that. So we get to kind of modulate. That's awesome. So real quick, I was just thinking, um, back to my daughter,
1: she's one of those is like, what is the meaning of life? You know, I'll just really trying to figure it all out. Um, and so i sent her a quote the other day and I, I feel like this you you remind you live up to this quote and the meaning of life the purpose of life is finding your passion developing your passion and then giving it to others giving it back to others and it seems you told you do that and i think that's amazing do you, so you do you feel like you've found the purpose of life the meaning of life
2: i, I don't <laughs> I don't know. You know, I feel. I feel like like I appreciate that reflection, and I think there's this pressure that we put on ourselves, and that kids put on young people put on themselves to find that thing. Um, and I certainly have had friends. Um, you know, like I'm I'm pushing fifty now, and like I have friends from high school who are still trying to figure out like what their calling is in life. And you know what? What I what I learned from People that I worked with in places like Liberia or Papua New Guinea is that, you know, if we get to have impact, broader impact, great. Um, but the stuff of life is the everyday stuff, and amen, <laughs> it really
1: is. Well, what do I tell my nineteen-year-old? I mean, what I have? No, what is the purpose of life? She's like, all people do is work, and I'm. I'm like, I, what I, is the purpose? I
0: think you just you can't. Think about that stuff. Well, if
1: you're Amanda, <laughs> if you're a child, if you're her, that's what she thinks about. No, I get it. She's I super get it, deep. But,
0: but like.
2: Well, I think I I think it's also, you know, when I'm working with people one on one, like if Amanda and I were having a conversation, I think things. I might need your
1: card after this.
2: <laughs> I love working with young people um, because, you know, this is the stuff of life It's like, how do I make meaning of getting up every day and like making breakfast and like going through the slog. And yeah, you know, like the kind of work I do, I get a lot of accolades for, but at the end of the day, it's work, you know? And I, I actually consider myself lucky because my work is so, um, I get access to so much wonderful stuff um, in other people's lives. So I get to bear witness to wonderful things in other people's lives. So I'm, I consider myself lucky in that way. Um, but um, when I'm working one-on-one with people, I'm really listening for what's important to them, what do they value, and how they can more fully experience themselves living out their values in their lives. Whether they're you know going to school and working at Starbucks, um, we can still live out our values in our everyday lives, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we are and and figuring out what that looks like for you for Uh for yourself um you know and and for me as a I think I was 19 or 20 when I worked at on that hotline it was I'm gonna I'm gonna show each person I talk with respect like I'm gonna they're gonna know that I respect them and I care and living that out um let me make meaning of doing a really hard job that I was doing on the weekends to get through school. You know, that was so. So I I'm always listening for like what what's meaningful and valuable to people, and encouraging people like how could you know asking the question how can there be more of that in your life, um and and that that can come in all kinds of ways. It can come in travel. Um, one of the things that really struck me is when I came back to the States after working in Liberia, I actually planned to go back and do a lot more work there. And um, when I got, I came back on an extended holiday and um, I thought I had, I got really sick and I thought I had malaria. Uh, which I'd had before, I knew what it felt like, and I was pretty sure that's what was going on. And my joke is, it turned out to be just a slightly different type of parasite. Who's an adorable eleven-year-old now. <laughs> <laughs> so um,
0: <laughs> I love that. Oh my god.
2: So that changed my plans. Like I had to turn back around from doing international work to doing domestic work mm. again, um, and that was really hard and disorienting for a minute. But then I started looking around, and I'm like, I don't need to go to another country to really show up for people who are suffering. Like, I can do that here. And and in fact, I can probably do it a lot better here because I already mm. know the culture. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a part of it, you know, whereas as an outsider, I was always having to, like, do double time to try to, you know, make up for my lack of cultural knowledge. So, yeah, I, I, I would encourage her to to be okay with not knowing right yeah. now and, and that there, she, you know, it sounds like she's going to make meaning of her She life. will. I mean, yeah. I love the fact she says, I said, she said, I
1: want to help people. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. We watched, um, when they see, when they see us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was crying. We were mm-hmm. crying.
2: Yeah. Have you seen it? I haven't. Oh I haven't God. watched it yet. Cause I haven't, I like for something like that, I need some time and space. Mm. <laughs> oh to, well, like, yeah. It is. Yeah
1: pretty brutal but everyone should it should be seen yeah. absolutely I think, I think it should be required viewing for people yeah. <laughs> anyway
0: so believe it or not we're pretty much out of time yeah i um, knew we didn't have we <laughs> talked for an I, hour what i wanted you to do is give us the volunteer opportunity information again cuz i absolutely. want people to I want people to hear especially you know, your story is so inspiring. The work you're doing is so inspiring, so important. And hopefully at this point, people have listened and they're like, I'm ready to take action. So what can they awesome. do? Awesome.
2: awesome. Well, if you would like to volunteer locally here, um, which I highly recommend um, doing work in your own community, um, Speak Up is a program of CSH. So you can go to CSH.org. And I think it's backslash Speak Up, I think. But they have a search bar there. You can find information about Speak Up. You can email me directly. I'm happy to, especially Woodbury students, alumni, like, you're my people. So reach out to me, dove at talkingpossibilities.com. I'm happy to share that information. And, um, and just know that, you know, we, uh, if we all do our part – And different people will have different parts. You know, we can have real impact. And um, I know that Woodbury has, um, when I was here, had mostly local people um, and uh, people who were already embedded within the communities around here. So this is, you know, this is for us. This is for Los Angeles. and, um, And it's making national impact. Like, they're replicating this program around the country. So... Um, come join us. And if you want a job job, um, hit me up and I'll send you the job description for the um, coordinator. It's currently a coordinator, but we're really looking for someone who's like, I want to bring my admin and creative skills um, and, and work into uh, a program manager position. So that's kind of where we're, where we're headed with that position right now.
0: Deb, thanks for joining us this afternoon, and please keep doing what you're doing.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Go woo.